0: I'm going to explain to you why we use that as we celebrate what was referred to in the Latin as Christ's Mass, as we gather together to celebrate what I have called Christmas future. Because when the Scriptures were given so many years ago, it was indeed a futuristic discussion that was happening in the prophecy of the Old Testament when we looked at Isaiah in 7.14 and chapter 9 and Micah chapter 5 and a few of the other texts that I'm going to share with you today. Christmas truly was something in the future that the Bible was telling us about, this Christ that would come and this baby in a manger that would be the salvation of the world. So we want to say welcome and Merry Christmas as you join with us in celebrating the birth of our Savior Jesus. And I want to invite you to turn to your Bible and find your place in Isaiah seven fourteen. And as you're finding your place there, I want to share with you an image that most of us are probably in this boat. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I have bought all the presents that I needed to buy for all of my loved ones, right? So I'm going to lie to you right at the very beginning of my sermon. Um, No, I'm still scrambling, right? Last-minute gift ideas are probably on many of our minds as we're thinking about the things we forgot to do already, and we're wondering, man, how fast can Amazon get it to me? But more importantly, how can it show up without her knowing that I bought it from Amazon, right? Right? Uh, so, last-minute gift ideas, and that theme is going to reign throughout this, this sermon as I share with you the gifts that God has prophesied about and told His people of the gift that would come in the way of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God who is dwelling amongst us. And I want to share with you over this message, the, the future Christmas, the coming Savior, I'm going to share with you a few things. As a matter of fact, here's our outline of the road trip that I'm going to take you on for the next 45 minutes or so. Okay, I lied to you twice maybe about an hour. Uh, I'm going to share with you four things uh, about the coming Savior that we need to understand. Number one, how he would come, where he would come, why he would come, and for who he would come. Uh, and I think that will resonate with all of us today as we go to God's words. If you will, if you're there in Isaiah 7:14 for a moment, we'll begin with our anchor text of the message. And if you don't mind, join me. Follow along in your translation as I read from the ESV, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord said himself will give you, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for the preciousness of the gathering of the body of Christ, and our guests and friends and family members that are here today to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Father, to hear from your word and to understand this great event that took place so many years ago for the salvation of the world prophesied from the very beginning of creation that Jesus would come. Father, we thank you for this understanding and we thank you for Emmanuel, God who dwells amongst his people. Father, be with this message and all that is said and shared. May the Holy Spirit transform us. Father, may it convict our hearts where we need to understand the great gift and the great length that you went to right on time for the salvation of the world. Father, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And again, we want to welcome all of you that are watching us at home on Facebook, uh, our social media all over the United States. We have visitors joining in. So we want to wish you a Merry Christmas as well and let you know you are important to our church family here. And if we can help you, please reach out. Matter of fact, some of our sound booth folks will be there to discuss with you if you need any prayer concerns or if you have any issues you'd like to share with us, we'd love to pray for you at home that are watching. And same thing for those of you that are here. Please let us know how we can pray for you. But how the Savior would come in Isaiah 7, 14 is an important understanding for you and I to, to get the grasp of what really occurred as we sang about that birth in a manger in Bethlehem so many years ago. In Isaiah 7:14, we see a few things that have taken place in the text. Follow along, read it one more time with me. A fairly short sentence here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Number one, I want to point out that the text talks about the very thing Pastor Corey shared with us as he read from the Christmas story narrative in chapter two of the book of Luke that it's a God given gift. Now, what's important about a God given gift? Now, if you're like me, Shannon and I have a challenge at Christmas time because we really don't celebrate Christmas the normal way where we save up all year long and then we buy this one big special gift and we give it to somebody. I like to think we do Christmas all year long. When we want something, we just get it. When we want to give something to our family member, we give it. We, we, that's just kind of how we do things. We don't wait for the Christmas event traditionally to do those things. But there's a difference when I just buy something for myself. See, I'm a hard shop. I'm a hard to shop for because I normally just get the things that I need. I have a, a little wood shop hobby. And, and when I need a tool or a clamp or an issue, well, I generally just buy it. So over time, it becomes real hard to buy things for someone. But do you ever notice that a gift you buy yourself is not nearly as valuable as the gift that someone else has bought for you? It's not nearly as meaningful as the gift that someone else gives you. Now, isn't it interesting in a culture and in a society today that we live in where self-help is the theme of just about everything. When you walk in a Barnes and Nobles or a Books a Million, if they still exist, I think it's just Barnes and Nobles now, When you walk into that store and you look across the shelves of what you can find, we notice that most Most of the best-selling books are some kind of a do-it-yourself-for-dummies book title, right? Investing for dummies, building for dummies. I showed a a brother the other day one of the first books I ever bought on how to do something for myself on basic electrical. My thought was, well, if I do it wrong, I'll only do it wrong once, right? Some of y'all completely missed that one, right? You can't go wrong. But we live in a culture that says, hey, you can do it for yourself. You can do this. You can pull yourself up by your, boot, boot, your bootstrap. But one of the most important things that we take away from this passage of Scripture is that it's a God-initiated gift that the text tells us in verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you not only a sign, but the Savior. And what God did for you and I is something that we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. No matter how much resources you have, There was a time I couldn't just buy the thing that I wanted to give my wife. I had to work real hard, and most of the time it was still out of reach. Isn't it amazing that no matter how much prosperity we have, no matter what society we live in, no matter what language we speak, however well, no matter what we have, we can never purchase the gift that God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a God-given, God-initiated gift that he gave for all to know. But secondly, notice that the text tells us very clearly here that there's an important element of the virgin birth. There's about five core things that when a Christian says, I'm a Christian, there's about five core issues that you have to resolve in your heart and have a biblical understanding of that makes us a Christian. And one of those things is the virgin birth. Notice in the scripture that Isaiah is prophesying. that says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, last time I went through education in my high school and physical education, I was taught about this issue of how to conceive a child. Now, I won't go into that here. But we know it's very difficult to have a child if you are still a virgin a woman who is of age of sexual maturity that has not had intercourse, but yet the Scripture tells us that it would be a virgin that shall conceive and bear a son. There is tremendous significance in the Christian faith for understanding why it's so important of the virgin birth. You see, Jesus' birth is unlike any other birth that has ever occurred or ever will occur again. You and I were born in sin. We were born in the same sin that Adam and Eve were plagued with when they were cursed by God in Genesis chapter 3. And that sin has perpetuated and permeated the entire earth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one, except Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't born in the way that you and I were born. Therefore, he wasn't tainted with our sin, Adam's sin, or the first sin. Jesus was sinless and perfect. Matter of fact, let me share with you in 2 Corinthians 5.21, after Paul talks about being an ambassador for Christ and we are his witnesses, notice he goes on to say this about Jesus. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus Christ was truly what, what John the Baptist said when he declared in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If you understand and study about this issue of sacrifices in the Old Testament, it would be the Lamb, the unspotted, the unblemished, the unimperfected Lamb, the one that was perfect from birth that would be offered for the sacrifices for the sin of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And John looks at Jesus as he's walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, perfect, unblemished, unspotted, no sin in him. As Paul would remind us, he became sin who knew no sin, so that we may be his righteousness. What a wonderful understanding of how Jesus is so different, his birth is so different, and absolutely necessary for him to be the Savior of the world. But thirdly, we see that the Scripture tells us, And shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And the understanding of that name and the etymology of where that name comes from, it literally means that God will dwell amongst you. God in the flesh that is with you. God is our Emmanuel and dwelt amongst us. In John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5 and in John 14, we understand that this God in the flesh that has dwelt amongst his people is such a radical concept. If you were royalty or king or matter of fact, if you were the president of this great nation... Most of the time, that president would never have an interaction with you and I. There would have to be some kind of special circumstance that would make you and I be able to stand before the president of our great nation. Wherever you stand on that issue, we all know that it's not a normal thing for us to be in the presence of a president. He would not leave his place and come to us unless there was a natural disaster or a tornado or a hurricane or some event like the Medal of Honor ceremony this week where he presided over But did you know that in Christ Jesus, God sent his only son to dwell amongst us, fully man, fully God, fully in the flesh, to understand what you and I deal with on a daily basis. The Bible tells us in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4 and onward how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And the scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways. Now that'll blow your mind, won't it? When the scripture says Jesus was tempted in all ways, we don't have enough hours in the day to talk about all the ways that this world tempts us with sin. But isn't it nice to know that the same Savior that dwelt amongst us, this Emmanuel, loved one by the name of Lazarus. And Jesus wept, the scriptures tell us. To know what it's like to fellowship and have communion, to be persecuted, to be spit upon, to be spat upon, to be smitten, if you will. He did that for you and me. What a wonderful Savior that we have. How we would come. God's given gift, a sinless Savior, and God in the flesh. John 1.14 reminds us that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. You see God wasn't too important to not visit his people. He not only visited but he took up residency here. Did you know what happens when you come to Christ? When we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit draws us into that relationship with the with the God the creator, you know that he gives us the Holy Spirit that dwells now within our heart. What a wonderful understanding of this Emmanuel. In complete perfection as it dwells with us today to guide us through the Holy Spirit. Now I've got an image as we sang about this. You may have wondered what it looked like on that day. Now, this is probably a poor rendering of of what the birth of Jesus, when the shepherds found and went and saw this babe lying in a manger and rejoiced, and the angels and the heavenly hosts were singing and all of those things. But where would he come? How would we know? How would the wise men see and search out this star and the magi go and find this baby lying in a manger in a in a trough? How would they know what was to take place? Well, scripture tells us if you want to find your place in Micah chapter five and verse two. I'm gonna put it up on the screen for you if you want to follow along. But the scriptures tell us about this birth of the Savior that would come. In Micah five, two, the following is, is stated about the birth of Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, where Jesus would be born was something that the, the, the Jews studied and tried to figure out, but Scripture was very clear in this, this minor prophet's prophecy. The Bethlehem, Ephrata. Ephrata was the old name for Bethlehem. Matter of fact, let me share with you Bethlehem what it means when you do the etymology and break the word Bethlehem apart, you find out that it means place of bread or the house of bread, the place where bread was dwelling. Now you might scratch your head and say, Well, that really has no real significance. What does it matter that this was called the house of bread or the place of bread? Let me share with you something that just kind of rocked me a little bit when, when I, I heard Jesus make this statement in John chapter six, thirty-five. 35. Oh, I read about it. He didn't actually speak it to me, but I read this. John 6, 35, check out what Jesus says now, who was born in Bethlehem Ephratah, this little place, this house of bread, this place of bread, and Jesus says the following, I am the bread of life. In heaven and on earth, excuse me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Isn't it interesting that this Savior, this Jesus, who was born in a place of bread, now goes on and proclaims to the world in his public ministry that it's not the place of bread that saves you, it's the bread of life that saves you. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever thirsts in me shall never, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a wonderful understanding of where the Savior would come and where he would be born. If you ever have the privilege of going to Bethlehem, it's just a small, little, obscure place. No real significance. I would argue if we didn't understand our faith in Christianity, and if Jesus had not been born in Bethlehem, we probably wouldn't even speak the word Bethlehem in our society and culture today. But isn't it amazing how God can use something little of insignificance to profoundly impact the world. Isn't it wonderful how the scripture also reassures us that God uses those who are weak, those who are not the best of everything, to confound the world, and he allows the fools to confound the wise. He allows the simple, ordinary people to have a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a testimony to what Jesus does in the life of whoever believes upon him and calls upon his name. Not only will they not hunger, not only will they never thirst, but they will have an intimate personal relationship with the God who spoke this world into existence. Folks, that's what we have in Jesus' name. Colossians reminds us that from him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The little baby born in Bethlehem, an insignificant place, but an impact upon the world that is still changing the lives of people every single day. If you're hungry, come to Jesus. If you're thirsty, He will quench your thirst. But why would the Savior come? Why would He need to come? Who would He be? Where would He be born? Why would He need to come for you and I? So I want you to turn your attention to Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 through 7 for a minute. And what I'm doing for you in a very short period of time, I know it's a tremendous amount of information, but if you write it down, you've got enough Bible study, you don't have to buy another Bible curriculum. Right? You just write this down, and you've got enough to last you at least till next week, and I'll give you another dose. So Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we see this prophecy again continue about this child, this child that would be born, the son that would be given. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, let me read the text for you. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, if we believe truly that God's word is inerrant, that it is sufficient, that is that God in Himself in His nature is omnipotent, omnipresent, all of those things. Then we have to believe that his word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then God cannot not fulfill what he said he would do. In the end of that verse, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We can count on it. As one man says, you can take that to the bank. Amen. He will follow through. But let me share with you what we see in in verse 6 there for a few moments of the four specific items that are brought out. There's about five of them. Number one, we notice that there's an external requirement that God gives us, as we looked at in the beginning in Isaiah chapter 6, that a son would be given. It would not be coming from us. We would not be able to do it or buy it ourselves. God would have to provide that eternal opportunity for us to have that relationship, that perfect lamb, that sacrifice. A son is given. What a gift that God gave to his creation. But secondly, we see that the term wonderful counselor is used. What is a wonderful counselor? Well, if we break those words apart, we see that wonderful means an extraordinary nature, making it mysterious or difficult to comprehend. Boy, aren't the depths of God's truth often difficult to comprehend just how deep it goes. Once, one man once said that it's, the Word of God is, is so harmless that an infant can shallow, uh, walk into the shallowest parts and never drown, but so deep that the greatest scholar can swim to the bottom and never reach the bottom. What a wonderful truth that we have in God's word that it's mysterious or difficult to comprehend. You ever wonder why sometimes people have a problem understanding scripture? I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and Paul reminds us that the man without the spirit the word of God is utter foolishness to him. You know, you don't have to scratch your head too long to watch our television or to read a newspaper or to interact with someone in the world who is acting out and living out their their nature. Someone who is not saved, someone who has never placed their trust and faith in Christ, who is living for themselves and their self alone, they might be a good person by the world standards. But if they've never put their trust and faith in Christ Jesus, when we try to explain the Word of God to them, what do they do? They scoff, they rebuke it, they need to know a little bit more about it, they want to test it against science, they want to prove the theories are wrong. For the unborn, the unspiritual man cannot discern the things of God. Isn't it wonderful, though, that this second part, wonderful counselor, that when we come to Christ, God gives us in John chapter 14 and chapter 15, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate, the Paraclete, that would come and dwell with us, that He would make His deposit in the believer, and that the Holy Spirit, God's presence, would dwell within the believer, making us able now to discern the things of God. What's a counselor do? Well, it's someone who gives advice about problems. Amen? We probably all need a little more help with that. But isn't it wonderful to know that in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells. Not only is it wonderful making the mysterious comprehensible, but also the counselor who gives us direction about the problems and things of life that leads us through the Holy Spirit to show us what God has for us. But thirdly, we see another term here, the mighty God. You see, Israel during this time had all kinds of false gods, little g-gods, from Baal to Asherah to other things they worship. And I'd argue that it's probably no different for you and I. We have a lot of little G gods in our own lives that are running around. Now, we might not worship a wooden pole anymore. We not, might not offer live sacrifices of our children to, to Baal as they did in the Old Testament times. But we're still chasing little Gs all around our world. It could be your title, it could be your position, it could be your job, it could be your bank account, it could be your 401k, it could be your retirement fund, it could be your home, it could be your car, it could be your four-wheeler, it could be the shotgun you want, it could be any of those things if we put it above and beyond the mighty God. You see, during Israel's time, God would show himself over and over and over again to be the one true God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Even in his laws, he reminds us in his Ten Commandments that thou shalt have no other gods besides me, before me. Meaning, God Almighty should take the priority place, the all-powerful, omnipotent God in our lives. But fifthly, we see that he's an everlasting father. Now, Some of us during Father's Day regret the fact that our fathers are no longer with us. Mine is still here, thank the Lord. But I cherish every day I get to spend with him now. Because I know our time is getting short. I don't know what that day looks like. But I know that every moment I get to spend with my earthly father is a treasure. But isn't it wonderful that the scripture describes our heavenly father as one who is everlasting, that Jesus is everlasting. Here's how Exodus 15, 18 describes it. The Lord will reign forever and ever. You remember in math class when the teacher drew that straight line? and said it's a, a line of infinity, or drew the symbol, meaning it never ended. Now, I don't remember what that math term's called, but I know this much. I got that answer wrong on the SAT, okay? It means forever, without end. It goes on and on. Now, that's a comprehension uh, challenge that we have in our world, because everything ends. That warranty on your car ends. I don't care what version you buy it says lifetime guarantee. I promise you they will find a way to not honor that warranty, You didn't change the oil when you were supposed to. And the computer recorded that. Guess what? You voided the warranty, right? We live in a culture that has to read the fine print because there's always some way that nothing is everlasting, not even the battery, even though it says everlasting energizer. It goes dead too, I promise you. But Scripture tells us we have a Heavenly Father that is absolutely without end for all creation. He's called the Everlasting Father. And lastly, we see that He's a Prince of Peace Now, here's a thought I want you to kind of sink in and burn it in your head. Because often we see that Prince of Peace and, oh, that's so wonderful. Little baby Jesus in the manger and all the animals lowing and baying. And animals do other things, by the way, but the shepherds clean that up later. right We think of the scenes of, of the baby scene in the manger. And we think of this Prince of Peace and we think about calm and serenity. And here's what I know about peace. There's got to be a battle that's got to be won before peace occurs. There's a battle that has to be won before peace can truly occur. Let me read for you this final battle scene from Revelation about this true war that will take place one day in Revelations twenty-seven through ten. And when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, the Savior would come to truly bring peace on earth. And I would argue that even if we... Stay out of the prophetic book of the Revelation in the New Testament, I'd argue that in order for us to have peace in our life, Jesus has come to win the battle that we have in the flesh. The battle that wages with every one of us against unrighteousness and righteousness. Against sin and against holiness. And God has come to help us secure a victory that only He could do. A victory that only comes when we put our trust in faith in Jesus Christ. Whether we want to admit it or not, no matter how good our life is, no matter what level of peace you may think you are experiencing now, without Jesus, it's a false peace. The peace deal will be broken at some point if it's brokered by men. Jesus brokers the only peace deal that will last for all eternity, is your trust and faith in Christ. I want to share with you, as we transition to my fourth point real quick, this is what we're all excited about it, right? Our kids are over there in children's church, but you adults are excited too. You just don't want to admit it, right? To get that little thing that you know your wife's been saving up for or that thing that you bought for yourself and wrapped it from Santa. Yeah, right? This is, what, this is what it looks like for many of us in our Christmas homes. We, we've had a... And my parents are watching, and I know you're watching, so enough with the Christmas presents. Our room is full, all right? It's what our trees look like often. have you ever seen what the first Christmas tree looked like? Let me give you a little picture of the first Christmas tree. First Christmas tree looked a little different than what we celebrate. First Christmas tree was a completely different image than what we often, and I love tradition. There's nothing, hear me church, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the Christmas traditions of giving gifts and family and food and family. Activities and caroling and songs and all of those things. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care where you come from, what book, I can debate you till the cows come home on this issue. We often try to hyper-spiritualize these issues, but when we forget what the first Christmas looked like is where we go wrong. When we forget why we celebrate Christ's mass together, that the birth of our Savior would ultimately result in the condemning of anyone who hangs on a tree. This is the tree that started it all. Jesus loved us so much that he'd be willing to offer that gift, not under a tree, but on a tree. So let me share with you the last part of this. Why? Why would he do this? And for who would the Savior come? For who would the Savior come? In John chapter three, verse sixteen, it's a fairly well used and well known verse. Uh, I argue we don't often comprehend the true love that God has for us. This agape love that only God can have for His people. But let's read it and see, and see if we can understand this gift that was offered on a tree some two thousand years ago. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in God, believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What a wonderful picture that we have of God's gift that he gave us What are the characteristics that we see in the scripture of God's gift? Number one, we see that it demonstrates God's great love for the world. The world cosmos in the Greek is used in this aspect of the text. And when we read it in its original languages, we often think that God's talking about his creation. But in reality, that world God so loved the world is referring to its people, those who he created in his image, in his likeness. He created them male and female, and he gave them a specific purpose of having over all of the earth to procreate, to populate, to subdue it. He gave Adam the wonderful task of naming all of the the creatures that crawled and flew and swam and all of those things. God had a specific role for His created man in His own image. Scripture tells us that humanity, humankind, are the only things ever made in the image of God. And God demonstrated His great love for us, that He not only sent His Son, Jesus, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, to dwell amongst us, but then offering him up as, indeed, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. How great a love that Jesus would die for you and me. How great a love. Now, I I love y'all. I say that, but it's not agapeo love. I'm not giving any of my children for you. None. Y'all hear me? If it happens, just know it was by accident. Right? I mean, that's really, really of the way we think and the way our hearts operate as humankind none of us would want to give our child for someone else especially not a stranger especially not someone we don't know and especially not a wicked person you can go ahead and let him die and do whatever God's going to do with him I could care less right that's the way our mind thinks that's the way our hearts think but isn't it wonderful that God died for the vilest of sinners God died for the wretchest amongst us. And isn't it wonderful that one sin puts us in the same category as everyone else? There is no difference. From the murderer, from the child abuser, to the wife beater, to the drunkard, to the prostitute, etc., I can go on and on. To the slanderer, to the maligner, to the tax evasion guy, there's no difference in our need for salvation The demonstrated love of God, Jesus' death on the cross, paid it all for all of us, if you put your trust and faith in Him. But secondly, notice in verse 17 that it declares God's desire. What is God's desire? Notice what it tells us in the text. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Now, park there for a minute. Pull over to the side of the road. Often we hear the, the apologetic rebuke against Christianity that God is a God of judgment, of torment, of wrath, of, of death, a God of punishments. Now those things come, but notice they only come to those who rebel. I mean, how many amongst us don't think that it's correct that if one of our children disobey, they get some form of punishment? And that every child's punishment is different based on the infraction that they occur, right? Some punishments that we divvy out is, as parents... Have greater severity based on the crime. But isn't it wonderful that with God all sin is equal. There is no difference. That it's unrighteousness and that unrighteousness keeps us out of the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, the Levitical priests, when they would enter in from Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they would go into the Holy of Holies, and they would go into the the area of the tabernacle where the, the Holy of Holies was, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, the cherubim would be there, and he would go in and offer sacrifices first for himself on this Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. And they would often tie a rope to his foot, and he would have bells on his garment, so they could hear the high priest still moving around, jingling. And they knew if the bells ever stopped, they couldn't go in there because if they went in there, they would be struck dead because of their sin and unrighteousness. They couldn't even be in the presence of the Shekinah glory where God's presence dwelled amongst his people in this temple in the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies. And they would drag the high priest out by the rope if his own sin condemned them and God struck them dead. Now too often we think that that's the view of God that everybody has. unrighteous God. What an unjust God. What an unloving God. But look what God declares His desire is in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Y'all catch that part? Man, what a loving God that knows what we deserve but withholds the punishment giving us an opportunity to be acquitted of our crime. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if our court system took on that God shows us in verse 17, where the court knows you're guilty of capital punishment, of some crime worthy of the death penalty. They've got all the evidence. The case is sealed. The DA's already high and ready to run for mayor. But the jury says, wait a minute, let's give him a chance to say I'm guilty. And if he confesses that he's guilty, we're going to let him go free. Now imagine if that happened in our court system. Wouldn't be, would blow our mind, wouldn't it? We'd all be declaring, we need justice. That's just wrong. Folks, you know that's the same thing that Jesus did for you and I when we were guilty in our sins and trespasses. But Jesus stepped up and said, you know what? I'll pay the penalty for what you did so you can walk out of the courthouse free of charge. I'm often reminded, though, Jesus looked at one of the men that he healed that was lame and got him up, and he ended up walking and was able to do, and Jesus found him a few days later in the marketplace, and he looked at the man, and he says, Good, sin no more, lest something worse should happen to you. Right? Don't take God's mercy and his love for granted. But God declared his desires not to condemn the world. Look in the second part of verse 17. But in order that the world might be saved through him. It's almost like the world says, you know what, thank you for paying my fine in court, but I really don't want your money. I don't want your acquittal. I don't want your blessings. I don't want you to do that for me. I'd rather go do the time on death row instead of accepting the pardon that you're willing to offer me. It's unfortunate that that's the picture that often is looked at when we look at God's Word. But look in verse 18 with me. Not only does it demonstrate God's love, does it declare God's desires, but it decrees God's truth of what will take place. Look in verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. You can underline that in your Bible. You can highlight it. You can star it. You can asterisk. Because guess what, folks? I have to come back to that verse over and over and over and over when the little voice whispers in my head, what makes you good enough to be a preacher? What makes you good enough to teach Sunday school?" What makes you good enough to witness to the waitress at lunch about Jesus when you know three days ago you did X, Y, or Z? We get this little voice that the devil likes to whisper. I'd argue sometimes it's not even the devil. It's our own self. We tell ourselves we're unworthy of the very thing that God's already signed, sealed, and delivered for us. God decrees his truth in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Notice God didn't say God condemned them. He's already condemned condemned by their sins and their trespasses. Again, for there are none righteous, no, not one. We all need God's gift, His great love, to understand God's desire for our communion and to understand God's truth. Why is He condemned? Because He is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Folks, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. Now, don't you think that it's rather fitting that the Jesus that hung on that first Christmas tree is now making the statement, and we made it before he hung on the tree, that I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What a wonderful truth that we have in understanding why we celebrate Christ's Mass, Christmas, and what Jesus did for us by giving His Son. For who? For the world, so that we may not be saved. So let me share with you in closing our message. And I, this is my gift to you. I'm going to give you back 10 minutes of your life to do something else, right? So my gift of closing to all of you, my last-minute gift ideas. What gift are you giving this what gift can you share that will make an eternal difference with the world? Is it the gift of Christ, the gift of the Word of God to proclaim the salvation to the world? Or are we scrambling trying to give a gift that's going to perish eventually? Do we truly understand what this last minute gift idea was? There was a man hanging on the cross with Jesus that truly received a last minute gift. And he put his trust in the faith in who Jesus was. Matter of fact, he rebuked this other criminal who was hanging on the other cross on the other side of Jesus. And he told him basically to shut up. He said, We deserve our penalty, but this man is innocent. He's done nothing deserving of death. But we're robbers, we're guilty. We deserve what we've gotten. And he looks to Jesus and he says, Remember me when you're in paradise. And Jesus forgave him of his sins right there. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus says to this man. Today you will be with me in paradise. His time was running out. But at the last minute, he received the gift of eternal life. Folks, I don't know the day and the hour in which each one of us will stand in the presence of Jesus. But I do know this much. God's scripture is clear on the way of the truth and the life. To have a relationship with our Creator. And I also know that that hourglass is ticking for every one of us. That eventually that sand will empty for each and every one of us. Whether Jesus returns tomorrow or my hourglass is up tomorrow, either way I will be in the presence of Jesus. I will either give an account for my sins and trespasses and hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I knew you not. Or I will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful Servant, Enter into your master's rest. Folks, that's what we will hear, one or the other. It's not too late. Jesus is still ready to give a last-minute gift to you in this season as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, without shuffling around, just stay still for just a moment. As God's speaking to your heart, What's that feel like? If you have a tug inside you that you know you've been fighting and resisting, that, that unquenchable feeling because you've heard the truth over and over and over, but yet you've been resisting it. And I know there are those of you that watch and there are those of you sitting here that have shared with me, I'm just not ready yet. Let me remind you, that time is coming short for all of us. And I plead with you, I urge you, I compel you, as Scripture says, to come to Christ. Enter into a relationship with Him while the time is still there, while there's still sand in your hourglass. Because the day is coming when that moment will pass. Christmas will be gone before we know it, and we'll be celebrating Valentine's Day. That's just the way of our nature and our society. It comes and it goes. But here's what I know. Eternity is forever. An eternal relationship either with Christ or away from Christ. In an actual place of torment called the lake of fire. Hades, Guyana, a place called hell that the rich man would say, Father Abraham, come and quench my thirst. My agony is too great. Uh, But a great chasm has been fixed between you and us. Respond to Christ while there's still time. That's my plea for you. And church, I pray that we remember while we celebrate all the festivities of our families and our season, and that's wonderful. And I look forward to that as much as any man. Let us remember what Christ has done for us on the Christmas tree some 2,000 years ago. So Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and the privilege to celebrate this Christmas season. We thank you for rejoicing and not the secular consumerism issues that while we like nice things and gifts, and that's all fun, but, Father, we thank you for knowing the truth behind this season that we celebrate a Savior that was born. Father, we thank you for the salvation of the world. We thank you for demonstrating your love on the cross of Calvary that yet while we were sinners, Christ died for me. Father, we thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray if there's one here that does not know you that they would truly accept the gift of eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.